You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theupc.org. Well, I thought that I would begin my message today uh, by reading a little parable that I've written for you. Ordinarily, this would be the moment they would jump up and head to the kitchen. Brad and Therese loved World Cup soccer, and the first period had been riveting. But Therese doesn't get up. Brad notices. Her eyes are still on the screen and large. Brad looks. It's a man in a mini-mart. He's very fit, like a Yukon lumberjack. The muscle shirt barely makes an effort to conceal the torrents of tissue flowing through his muscles and an abdomen, his abdomen, is hammered hard as knots on a log. But this lumberjack is dancing. To the Backstreet Boys, he spins raw through the sodas and chips like a PNB master. Brad wants to smirk, but the unguarded look in Therese's eyes discomforts him, as though somehow in this moment he faces an existential threat. Therese, he ventured when the ad is over, would you, would you want to be with that guy? No, I want to be with you, Brad. That's good, says Brad, and moves closer. If he is not entirely relieved, maybe it's because Brad senses that Therese is trying to work something out in her head. Why, she wonders, do I feel just the smallest bit dishonest? Is it wrong to say that I would rather be with Brad than that guy? I do want to be with Brad. I want Brad. I don't even know that other guy. Of course I don't want to be with him. And yet, I think I did want him. Just then, I was sitting next to the guy I want more than anything, and I wanted a guy that I don't want. How could that be? Hey, who wants a cold beer? Her thoughts are interrupted by Sanjay, just back from the refrigerator. Therese reaches out and takes an IPA. Sanjay looks at Brad and holds another bottle over the back of the couch. Do you want a beer? Brad glances towards the screen. It's an appliance commercial now. He looks down at the roundness of his belly, rising and falling beneath his shirt. And without turning around, says to Sanjay, No thanks, I don't want one. Why do I want what I don't want? That's the question I want to think about with you today. Why do I want what I don't want? Why sometimes do I not want what I think I really do want? Our, our hearts struggle with desire. A little while ago, I received a phone call. A man uh, was on his cell phone. He said, I'm driving towards you now. I'll be there in 45 minutes. I'm absolutely desperate. I need to speak with you. I said, okay. He didn't have an appointment. Swept something aside. And 45 minutes later, a man came through the door of my office who was extremely well-dressed. He looked like a banker, but he sat down in the chair beside my desk and began to sob like a child. He said, I just heard from my wife. She has taken our child, cleaned out our house, and she left me a note saying, I never want to speak with you again. And he said, I have to get her back. All I want is my wife and my child. All I want is to raise this family. 
But as I listened to him tell his story, I realized he did want that. He wanted it desperately. But he also wanted alcohol. He also wanted his career. He also wanted a great deal of control. What do you do when you want what you don't really want and you don't want what you want? We're into a new series called Freedom in Christ. The Apostle Paul tells us in the Bible for freedom, Christ has set you free. Last week we learned that real freedom is not the ability to do anything that you choose. Real freedom is the, is the ability to become your true self. And if we're going to become our true self, this has to do not just with our decisions, but with our desires, with that inner struggle that we all know in our lives about desires that conflict with one another. So thankfully, uh, the gospel addresses this, and the Apostle Paul teaches us about it in Galatians chapter 5. So would you please grab a Bible from the pew rack in front of you, or the one that you brought, and open up to Galatians chapter 5. Our text today is on page 948. It's Galatians 5, verses 16 through 24. If you're able, would you stand with me, and let's read God's word aloud together. Galatians 5, verses 16 through 24. When we're done reading, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord, so that if you believe it, you can say, thanks be to God. Listen carefully, you're reading his holy word. Live by the Spirit, I say, and do not gratify the desires of the flesh. For what the flesh desires is opposed to the Spirit, and what the Spirit desires is opposed to the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to prevent you from doing what you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not subject to the law. Now the works of the flesh are obvious. Fornication, impurity, licentiousness, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, anger, quarrels, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. I am warning you, as I warned you before, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. By contrast, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against such things. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. This is the word of the Lord. Heaven and earth will pass away, but what you just read never will. Please be seated. It's interesting to me that the Apostle Paul begins this chapter with a great headline that calls us to freedom in Christ. But it doesn't take him very long to get to this section in which he has to acknowledge that living with freedom isn't quite as so simple as just saying living with freedom. It's complicated. There's a problem. And it's the problem of the heart. As Woody Allen famously said, the heart wants what the heart wants. But I would ask, what does the heart want really? Does my heart want the thing on the screen or the thing that's sitting right beside me? Does my heart want something cold in a can or something flat underneath my shirt? What if the heart wants both? Which is the real me? 
We understand what the Apostle Paul says elsewhere when he writes in Romans 7, I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good that I want to do, but the evil that I do not want to do, this I keep doing. I don't know how to make sense of it, he says. Inside of me, there's something that wants this. I don't really want that. I call it evil. There's something also that wants this. I can't quite get myself to do it. Galatians 5 describes for us an inner struggle. In verse 17, we see it spelled out clearly, where Paul writes, For what the flesh desires is opposed to the spirit. And what the spirit desires is opposed to the flesh. For these are opposed to each other. Two sets of desires. One he calls flesh. The other he calls spirit. I want to call them today two aspects of your heart. We'll call one the fear heart and the other the free heart. The interesting thing is that both of these parts of your heart, the fear heart and the free heart, reside within one heart, your heart. They're both there. Did you catch this? Paul says they are, they, the flesh and the spirit are there opposed to one another. He uses that word several times. And that word opposed in the Greek r- literally means lying against something, like two battle uh, armies on a battlefield. They're lying against, they're set against one another right there. The picture that comes to my mind when I think of this is a picture of two sumo wrestlers, massive wrestlers, locked in a struggle, just sort of frozen there, you know, like the just pushing against one another, the fear heart and the free heart. And the question this morning is, how do you help your free heart win? Is there anything you and I can do to give the free heart the edge in that opposition? And is there any way that we can really want what we really want? So what Paul offers us, what I call three levers that we can give to the Holy Spirit. Uh, And in short, there are a trail, time, and trust. Trail, time, and trust. Let's look at these three levers together. The first lever is the trail. You give the Holy Spirit a look down the trail. I say this because I believe the Apostle Paul is asking his readers to consider where will this desire lead if I were to fulfill it, if I were to gratify it? Where would it lead? In verse 16, where this begins, uh, Paul uses trail language. He speaks, instead of live, the literal word is walk by the Spirit. He's imagining that you're on a walk. Walk by the Spirit. And then the word gratify there, or fulfill in some translations, is, is really the word uh, that means to reach a goal or take to the end. It's related to the word telos. So you're on a path, and that path will lead you somewhere. Now, when you have conflicting desires that are in opposition to one another, you've come to a fork in the path, haven't you? And there are two different ways that you could go. You could satisfy this desire or that desire. You could go down this path or that path. You stand there like Robert Frost in the woods, kind of wanting to see both of them, but you know you can only walk one way. So the Apostle Paul says, well, what I want you to do first is I want you to give the Holy Spirit a look down the trail. I want you to consider where either of those trails might eventually lead. And that's where he spends the bulk of the time in the passage, doesn't he? He he speaks of the the works of the flesh. And he names a bunch of things that will distort life, 
right? And then he speaks of the fruit of the Spirit. Many of the things that are beautiful. These are the things that we really want behind all of our wants. So Paul says, would you look down the trail when you're facing conflicting desire and consider where would this lead? This is the first insight of the text. What you want at the trailhead doesn't matter as much as what you want at the destination. Can we agree with that? So walk your mind down the trail before you step. Therese is sitting there in her living room, and she might imagine that this Yukon lumberjack would step into three dimensions, and of course she would then sweep the Cheetos off the table, do a dolphin dive, and they'd tango under the northern lights together in her mind. Imagine that. But when she really thinks about it and with her mind looks down the path, she realizes, hey, I got an allergy to pine pollen. I hate camping and I don't even know how to speak Canadian. So this is not going to go anywhere, right? (laughs) No, I'd much rather live a long, quiet life with Brad. So this helps to look down. My wife and I were hiking a little while ago, and we had heard that there was a lake uh, in the forest. So at the trailhead, with parking lot, there were actually a number of trails. We thought, well, they'll probably all go to the lake. So without much care, we just started walking down one of the trails. But 15 minutes later, we were back at the parking lot. We just looped back around. We tried another t- trail. You know, this could be a really long story, but I'll tell you all day long, all we did is loop back to the parking lot again and again and again, and we never saw the lake. The point is, not all trails go where you really want to go in life. But your desires will take you somewhere. If you gratify a desire, it'll always feel good in the moment. But will it take you someplace good? Hebrews 11.25 speaks of the fleeting pleasures of sin. And God asks in Psalm 4, verse 2, How long will you love what is worthless and aim at deception? Calling us to think ahead Look down the trail. The second lever uh, has to do with time. First, we give the Holy Spirit a look down the trail. And secondly, we realize we can give the Holy Spirit lots of time. Paul asks his readers to consider time. How can I give God time to renew my heart? Notice in verse 22, as we move through the passage, the primary metaphor Paul uses is fruit. And fruit, fruit always takes time. This is an offense to those of us who live in an instant culture. We don't get it. Fruit takes time. Just ask the farmer who has leveraged everything to buy that seed and won't have a penny to his name until the harvest comes that fall. He's eagerly waiting. He's patiently waiting. He's watchful, but he's patient. Just ask the preschooler who's got a styrofoam cup of dirt sitting on the windowsill, and she returns again and again and again, waiting for that first green little sprout to come up. Fruit takes time. So the second insight of the passage is you'll never have a free heart without being patient with your rebel heart, your fear heart. Be patient. So give yourself time to grow. Imagine Therese when she comes to the realization that she actually does want the sweaty heart throb on the screen. She could just freak out at that moment. She could go, oh my gosh, I'm astonished at my infidel heart. But what she'll do if she does that is she'd give up on the relationship with Brad. She'd walk away from him. Because she'd say, either I'm no good for him because my heart's unfaithful. Or she'd say, I must not really want him because I'm so attracted to this guy on the screen. But you and I know that relationship takes time. 
Her love for Brad is going to grow over the years. She's got to be able to make her peace with those parts of her heart that doesn't yet love him. Same thing in the spiritual life. Paul wants us to understand the spiritual dynamics. That's why he gives us this picture, or at least I gave you the picture, the two sumo wrestlers, the free heart and the fear heart locked in combat. Who are these combatants? Well, the free heart, what I'm calling the free heart, Paul calls the spirit. This is shorthand for the Holy Spirit. Paul has already told his readers, and it might be worth looking at this later, uh, because I think there's a lot of confusion about the Holy Spirit. He's already told his readers that the way you gain the Holy Spirit in your life is through believing in Jesus. It's that simple. In Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, he says, We receive the Holy Spirit by believing in Jesus. So if you believe in Jesus, the Holy Spirit is in your life, whether you feel that or not. And what the Holy Spirit is trying to do, Paul tells in the next chapter, chapter 4, verse 19, is to form Christ inside of you. That's what the Holy Spirit wants to do with you, trying to form Christ. He's trying to form in you the real you, you see, trying to make you free. This is the free heart. What does the Holy Spirit desire in your life? Well, Jesus tells us in John chapter 16, verse 14, Jesus, when he promises the Holy Spirit to his disciples, says, he will glorify me. That's what he desires, to glorify Jesus. That's what the Holy Spirit wants in your life. So we might say that the desire of our free heart is the glory of Jesus. It's to find our good in Jesus. This is the part of our hearts that say, I want what Jesus wants to receive good from him. What about the fear heart? Well, this is the part of our heart that the apostle calls the flesh. And here he's not talking about a, a physical distinction of the body versus the soul. Here he's talking about the flesh as our sinful nature. And Paul will do this throughout his epistles. The word flesh oftentimes to him means the impulse toward autonomy. To say to God, I don't want you. I call it the fear heart because fear is at the root of our quest for our autonomy. If you go all the way back to the beginning of the biblical narrative, you have Adam and Eve in the garden. And there's this moment when under the serpent's instigation, Adam and Eve fear that maybe God is withholding some good from them. Really? He hasn't given us every good? And so they eat the forbidden fruit. And then what happens? They lose their freedom because they're exiled. They were meant to live in the garden with God. Now they're exiled. They're outside of the garden. They're east of Eden. And at this point now, their life is riddled with fear. So we fear living with a God. We fear living without a God. This is the dynamic of the flesh. And what does it desire? It's the part that says, I want what I want to create my own good. So you have these two combatants in your heart. Let's be honest. I love the realism of the Apostle Paul at this point. You and I tend to think, well, first I must be just, I just have a fear heart, and then I come to faith in Jesus Christ, and I must have a free heart. And the Apostle Paul goes, no. You, like me, have both at the same time. And that's why your growth will take time. And it will demand patience. Abide, Jesus says with me. Abide with me. The fruit will come. Look past the desire, down the trail, and then be patient with yourself as you walk that trail. Trail, time, and then there's a third lever. You and I can give the Holy Spirit 
all of our trust. Trust. Finally, the Apostle Paul asks us, his readers, to consider which desire do I trust more? In verse 24, he points us to the cross. Let's look at that. He says, Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh, the fear heart, with its passions and desires. He takes us to the cross. Now, we're going to come back to this later. We need more time on this, and we'll, uh, we'll do that in, in a few weeks. But all, what I want you to see here is that Paul tells his reader to bring the fear heart to the cross of Jesus Christ. And this leads us to our third insight, that desire follows trust. Your desire will follow your trust. This is something that the addict knows very well. The more you trust in something, the more you will learn to desire it. So, uh, trust the Holy Spirit. Therese pulled back from her two-dimensional heartthrob. Why? Because ultimately she said, I don't really know that guy. There's something that attracts me to him, but I don't really know him. And yet, I do know the slouch on the couch next to me, the flesh and blood guy who's right there. I know him. We have a history together. We spend time together. I know who he is, and I know how he loves me. And in that context, the choice becomes easy. Because I know him, I trust him. And because I trust him, I desire him. Here's what the cross does to build trust in our lives. First of all, it convinces us that God is trustworthy. Doesn't it? The cross convinces us that God is trustworthy. All the ways that the creator of time and space could have disclosed himself within his creation, he chooses a wounded son who dies on a cross. He loves you that much. He loves this creation that much. God, think of it this way, wants God's desire. God wants you more than he wants himself. So that he stakes himself to a world that wants what it doesn't want. This is the end game, by the way, the fear heart, because the fear heart wants nothing more than to be able to crucify God, which it does. God gives himself to that so that it can be the end of the fear heart. God is trustworthy. You can trust him with your life. The second thing that the cross does to build trust is it convinces us that our free heart is trustworthy. In other words, our free heart is our real heart. However small it might be at this point in your Christian life, however little influence, however puny and weak you feel it might be, however ill-matched that it feels against the uh, sumo wrestler that we call the fear heart in your life, your free heart is your real heart. It's gaining market share in your life. You get to say, as I get to say, when you act out of fear and rebellion, that's not really me. And when you feel a little bit of love or trust or joy, you could say, that's me. I trust that. I am going to lean into that. I'm going to act out of that. I'm going to gratify that desire because that's the real me. Why do I say that? Well, look, the cross is the sign of the new covenant. Well, God had given his people in exile, ancient Israel, a great hope that because they had broken the old covenant, that a new covenant would come. And it comes with Jesus. 
But I want you to hear the words from two prophets through whom the Lord spoke, telling us what the new covenant would be like. Jeremiah wrote, The days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. I will put my law within them. And I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Jeremiah 31. Then Ezekiel, the Lord speaks through him. A new heart I will give you, and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove from your body the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and make you follow my statutes and be careful to observe my ordinances, and I will make the fruit of the tree and the produce of the field abundant. You see, so when we see the cross of Jesus Christ in human history, now we know the new covenant has come. We can trust God's promise that he has put within all the believers of Jesus Christ a new heart. He doesn't just ask you to change your heart. He replaces your heart through the gift of the Holy Spirit. So if you know God through Jesus, trust his spirit. Trust his spirit. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And lean not on your own understanding. He will guide you, as Paul says in verse 25. You can be guided by this Holy Spirit. When you give the Holy Spirit a look down the trail, the time to do his work and all of your trust, you will begin to want what you really want. You will want what Jesus wants. I wish I could tell you the whole story of what happened in my banker friend's life, but it's wonderful. I, I'm, not, I'm not up to speed with him today. But he did say this. He said yes to Jesus. He did join a support group to get some help in community. He did seek reconciliation with his wife and with his children. I had the privilege of meeting her, incorporating her into Christian community. And I'm reminded of what the Warren said, that even a broken tree will bear fruit in the garden of God's grace. And that's good news for me. I trust it is for you as well. I'm going to close with the words of Karl Barth, who wrote, If Christ's spirit takes possession of me, I may have hope for myself and for all others. Where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, what a, what a gracious, wonderful God you are. Indeed, we feel love. Indeed, we feel joy. Indeed, we feel patience, peace self-control. Forgive us for trying to create our own good and open us up to the good that you've already promised us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. May we be a community at University Presbyterian Church who is known as a spirit-filled community of Christ followers. We pray in his name. Amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.